Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In the years leading up to the Civil War, the floors of Congress could, at times, resemble a battlefield. The divisions over slavery that would eventually lead the nation to take up arms against itself were a particular source of conflict. One of the most notorious attacks was on Massachusetts Senator and abolitionist Charles Sumner. His two-day speech decrying a law allowing slavery in new territories so irked South Carolina Representative Preston Brooks that he resorted to violence. A day later, he approached Sumner at his desk, grabbed the cane he used due to injuries from a previous duel, and beat Sumner until the senator was unconscious before walking out of the chamber unopposed. Sumner survived the attack, and both he and Brooks became heroes to their respective sides of the slavery debate. Two years earlier, Sumner had helped found the Republican Party. Its guiding principle was the abolitionism that would lead to Sumner's caning. Today's GOP doesn't have that single unifying idea, and there's been no post-mortem of the 2020 election to identify a new path forward. Instead, Republicans are doubling down on culture wars and look likely to return to the man who many in the party refuse to accept lost the presidency in 2020, Donald Trump. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today... What does the Republican Party stand for beyond loyalty to Donald Trump? Republicans are in celebration mode, buoyed by capturing the Virginia governorship and pushing Democrats close in New Jersey. These strong results suggest the party, just a year after losing the presidency, may have already rediscovered the recipe for electoral success. It's now less than a year until the 2022 midterms, and in part two of our mini-series looking ahead to those, we're probing how the GOP is tackling opposition. Where next for the Republican Party? With me as ever to try and make sense of all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. Charlotte, how are you doing and what's going on in New York? New York elected Eric Adams this week to be its mayor, which was no surprise. But more surprisingly a little is that in New Jersey, there was a hugely close race um, with the governor, Phil Murphy, just fending off his Republican challenger. So it's been kind of a busy news week electorally in the New York metro area. And that close race in New Jersey was a big red flag for Democrats going forward. John, how are things your end? You're wearing your Chicago Bears hat, which often means that it's been a heavy news week. 
Uh, all it means is that it's freezing cold where I'm doing this podcast from in the continuing saga. I'm, I, I fear I'm turning this podcast into home improvement or home <laughs> chaos, but it's just another thing that's gone wrong in this house. And before we get into this week's elections and election results and what they all mean and the future of the GOP, tell us, how did your son do in the Halloween contest? He won. He won. He was, uh, again... How many years straight is that? Three in a row. He's a very happy young man. And the thing we weren't allowed to talk about last week is what the costume was. So, so what was he dressed up as on the big day? He was dressed up as uh, Marvin the Paranoid Android from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Basically, he looked like a giant hard-boiled egg with green eyeballs. It was great. Um, that's some very impressive parenting on your part. Okay, we've got a lot to talk about in this week's episode, so let's get to it. Charlotte, you mentioned already the results in New Jersey. Could you give us a quick tour of what happened for anybody who hasn't been glued to the news over the past few days? Well, Phil Murphy, the Democrat in New Jersey, his victory is obviously better than a loss, but given that Joe Biden carried that state by 16 points um, just a year ago, it's pretty remarkable that it was this close. And then in Virginia, which we talked about last week, you saw Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat, lose to Glenn Youngkin, a political novice and private equity executive. And Youngkin's strategy of eating away at margins in the suburbs and and really going after the base in rural counties seemed to work well. He uh, was able to argue successfully, basically, that Democrats are useless on economic issues and harmful on cultural ones. So that seemed to work. Well, if the Republican Party is resurgent electorally, it seems important to try and figure out what it's about these days. While all this election news was happening, John, you were in Florida at a meeting of social conservatives trying to do just that. Well, the conference was the National Conservatism Conference. And what it basically is, is an attempt to reshape the Republican Party in the theory of one of this conference's leading lights, a political philosopher named Yoram Hazoni. The Republican Party was during the Cold War a sort of three-legged stool of Cold War hawks and economic libertarians and social conservatives. Social conservatives feel that they were the junior partner in this coalition. So what this conference was an attempt to refuse the Republican Party as a coalition of social conservatives as the main partner, the senior partner, and China hawks and people who Professor Hazoni referred to as anti-Marxist liberals, which I think basically means economic libertarians who are willing to suck it up for the sake of blocking the left coming to power. And it was a fascinating conference. We'll talk about it in a minute. But it showed, among other things, that the sort of fight over the size of government is really over. Both Democrats and Republicans seem perfectly happy with big government. They just wanted to do different things. So it was really an attempt to redefine the terms of conservative politics in this country. And the conference really drew some big names. There was Josh Hawley, who gave a big speech. There was Marco Rubio, who was there virtually. And there was, of course, Ted Cruz. The left's attack is on America. More fundamentally than anything else, the left hates America. There was a lot of concern over what they called woke ideology. Uh, that concern was probably most clearly expressed by Ayan Hirsi Ali, who is a Somali-American political writer. Wokeism today, in my view, is a greater threat to our society than the discredited and defeated ideology of white supremacy. And then we heard from Yoram Hazoni, who wrote a book called The Virtue of Nationalism that's proven hugely influential on the right. He was essentially calling for a reworked public culture that is much more open to the public expression of religion and much more, I guess for lack of a better word, much more anti-liberal. 
Okay, you, if you're 80% of the population and somebody else has a different view and they're 2% of the population, there's a limit to how much equality there can be between people who are 80% of the population or a point of view that's 80% of the population and people who are 2% of the population. Liberals find this difficult. Conservatives find this obvious. For a country to survive, it has to have a public culture. That public culture has to have norms. Our job is to hand it down from generation to gen generation, not just, not just families, congregations, also the government. Our job is to hand down moral norms. During the conference, I sat down to speak with Patrick Deneen, who is a political philosopher who teaches at the University of Notre Dame. He's one of the more eloquent exponents of the philosophical trend that this conference is centered around, which is a more communitarian, more religiously focused, less sort of secular and liberal public American culture. Social conservatives became kind of a junior partner in, uh, in the fusion of, of social conservatives, economic libertarians, and kind of Cold War hawks. The Cold War hawks kind of got their wars. The libertarians kind of got more of their economic policy under you know, various Republican administrations. But the social conservatives have always felt like they really didn't get much. Uh, they brought a lot of voters to the polls. They got a few Supreme Court appointments that have consistently disappointed. But uh, in terms of sort of the things that are important to social conservatives, those have all receded in our civilization, in our nation. So Yoram Hazoni made a very interesting talk yesterday in which he proposed that uh, a new fusion, so his title of his talk was defusionism, but it was actually refusionism in, in my reading. Uh, the, the new fusionism should be one in which social conservatives in some sense drive the car and the others can sort of join. It's not clear to me uh, whether that proposal will actually fly in some ways politically, um, whether social conservatives have the political power and the will to advance this. But it is, it is nevertheless an interesting effort to kind of reconstruct strands of the old uh, conservatism. One last thing on this note is that the old fusionism was held together by the external forces of communism abroad and kind of creeping socialism domestically. And it's quite clear also that this conference is designed to point to the external threats of China and the internal threats of um, sort of critical race theory and uh, sort of woke progressivism. So I think it's in the context of these felt threats from both abroad and internally that there's some belief that this old fusion can be re sort of humpty dumpty and put the pieces back together again. Um, economically, national conservatism seems to draw from the left more than, I don't know, draw from the left, but advance policies the left would agree with more than libertarianism. So if you had... The previous conservatism, you had sort of economic libertarians as one of the senior partners. Can you see a way in which national conservatism would draw in the sort of the Sanders left, the pro-worker left as a, as a partner in this coalition? I tend to think or suspect that there's a promising or potential coalition between, uh, as you describe, a kind of Sanders voter um, and uh, a kind of conservatism now that sees a tighter link between a kind of we might think of as a more interventionist economic kinds of policies and forms of social conservatism that aren't the old, you might, we might think of them as the old fashioned forms of social conservatism that sort of impose strictures, but rather in, in some ways you could say seek to promote incentives. Like I think a lot of us on the more social conservative side are far less interested in talking about you know, divorce laws today. I mean, I, I wouldn't mind if we were, but I don't think we're there. 
but we are interested in talking about ways that uh, the, the government at various levels uh, can provide support for family formation and for parents to be at home and raise their children. What can we do to make up for the loss of the one-person income, the enough income for one parent to be able to stay at home if they wish? Uh, he or she wishes, sorry. Um, so I think that these are kinds of policies. If you read, for example, you know, old Elizabeth Warren book on the family, this is like we're totally on board with that, right? She completely, at least at, least at one time, understood that a kind of a good economy, uh, an economy that supports a kind of moral order can be in some ways, you know, consistent with what we might think of as certain social conservative aims and ends. Charlotte, listening to all those folks who John spoke to at the conference, it's quite striking that these people are in the same movement as Donald Trump, who is not known for his interest in in political philosophy, unlike many previous conservative presidents. You know, Reagan famously, you know, read a lot of Hayek and, you know, was much more sort of intellectual than people often give him credit for. Trump's the opposite of that. So do you think any of this stuff has much influence over the Republican rank and file? Or do you think that what's going on in the party is actually you know, completely divorced from these rather erudite debates about a new fusionism in the Republican Party? I think there's a connection because I think that Trump is the standard bearer and I think will remain so. But I also think there are many disciples who want to have their political platform grounded in um, a coherent platform. John Fassman's point about big government, I think, is so interesting because Republicans and Democrats in some ways are converging in certain areas, particularly on economic policy, where you see more appetite for protectionism, more appetite for uh, policies that promote domestic workers. Um, But there's this huge divergence culturally. And I think that Venn diagram of a broad appetite for state intervention with some overlap, um, particularly on economic policy, but wide divergence on cultural issues is a really important one. And we saw that divergence playing out in the way the debate evolved in Virginia, with a lot of focus on critical race theory, even though no critical race theory is actually taught in Virginia schools. Youngkin ran on eliminating it from public schools. So I think that it's important to acknowledge both the overlap and the divergence because that helps define how these battles are going to play out in the midterms next year. Yeah, I think what this conference testified to as much as anything, you know, I heard one speaker mention Donald Trump and that was Ted Cruz who said that the reason we like him is because he fought. But Cruz also referred to Donald Trump as a unique individual in sort of a winking way. So this wasn't a Trumpist conference, but what Donald Trump showed in 2016 is that you could run as a heterodox Republican. And there was a lot of appetite for that. There's a lot of appetite for talk about things other than small government, about rewriting the terms under which the Republican Party operated. So I think this conference, as much as anything, was a recognition that those terms are open to redefinition and that these are the grounds on which they will fight. Now, whether this becomes the future of the party, that's something that will play out over the coming you know, cycles, years, decades. But the intellectual terms on which the Republican Party is founded do appear more open now than they did in 2008 or 2012. Okay, thank you both. We'll find out why speakers at that conference were quoting a radical left-wing philosopher in a moment. First, my usual reminder that there's much more Economist if you become a subscriber. 
This week, I've written a piece on why things look quite so bad for the Democrats. We report on the election results in Virginia, New Jersey, and elsewhere, and the Lexington column, which is particularly good. I feel like I say that most weeks, but that's because it's true. Profiles the Ivy League populists, uh, like Virginia's governor-elect Glenn Youngkin, who are cropping up all across the Republican Party at the moment. Checks and Balance listeners can find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. The National Conservatism Conference is an odd place to learn about a radical left-wing German-American philosopher and hero of 1960s counterculture. But Herbert Marcuse's name was repeated often, even if Missouri Senator Josh Hawley slightly mispronounced it. No, the really oppressive thing about American society, according to Marcuse, was culture. Marcuse was part of the Frankfurt School, formed in 1929 by a group of anti-capitalist philosophers and social theorists, trying to understand why Marxism had so far failed in the West. In 1979, two months before he died, Marcuse explained the doctrine the school was best known for, critical theory or critical philosophy. The concern of critical philosophy is the human condition. It seems that human beings, men and women, have had a rather frustrating, hard and harsh and repressive life throughout history. This, it seems, has not improved at all with technical progress. Now, critical philosophy tries to find out what are the reasons for this condition, and even more important, what are the real possibilities of building a society in which this would no longer be the case. His work, trying to create a framework for how society should be, and a path to get there, made him beloved by 1960s student revolutionaries. His name was daubed on the walls of Paris during the 1968 protests. Marcuse had fled Nazi Germany for the States with the rest of the Frankfurt School and stayed for the remainder of his life. The civil rights activist, Angela Davis, was his student and mentee. She was on the same platform when he addressed a rally at UC Berkeley in 1969. The fight against all those who want to make your university a training school for the perpetuation of a society, the security of which and the prosperity of which is based on the oppression and enslavement of other peoples. Marcuse is cited as one of the links between critical theory and critical race theory. He didn't coin the term, but in his seminal 1964 work, One Dimensional Man, he did identify racial minorities as potential revolutionaries. If workers in the West weren't going to successfully overthrow capitalism, Marcuse wondered if the exploited and persecuted of other races and colours might. Yeah. 
Again and again at the National Conservative Convention, socially conservative Republicans characterized their leftist enemies as deconstructivists who want to destroy America. The critical theory of deconstruction runs back to mid-century intellectuals like Jacques Derrida and Herbert Marcuse and farther back to the Frankfurt School of the 1930s and back farther still to Marx. Senator Hawley invoked Marcuse while attacking Democrats for being anti-American manhood. But it was activist Christopher Rufo who was most preoccupied with the German philosopher. When you have a United States senator quoting Marcuse, you know things have gone horribly wrong, but they're going in the right direction. Last summer, Rufo almost single-handedly kick-started the Ferrari over critical race theory, drawing attention to the anti-racism seminars being run by the federal government across America. Rufo traced the contents of the seminars back to the origins of critical race theory in the 1980s. He'd found, in his own words, the perfect villain, a neat label for the elitist and anti-American enemy conservatives had been fighting in a culture war for the past decade. Marcuse even wrote um, that the old way of revolution, the working class revolution, seizing control of government buildings and you know, TV antennas, uh, was, was unworkable in the conditions of modern capitalism. Uh, but through a process of subversion, through a process of steadily deteriorating the culture, uh, you could essentially get a, get a country or a culture to submit over time. It seems puzzling that Herbert Marcuse has joined the ranks of more obvious targets like AOC or Joe Biden as a bogeyman of choice for the right. This could just be a means of adding theoretical heft to a conference speech, a bit of intellectual posturing in front of political peers. But invoking Marcuse also helped the speakers paint critical race theory as a stealth tool of Marxist revolution. Marcuse believed that culture was as much a tool of oppression as capitalism, and so his work enables conservatives to make a jump. By reinterpreting culture and history, critical race theory is an assault on America itself. John, one of the takeaways from Glenn Youngkin's victory in Virginia is that this Republican strategy of talking a lot about critical race theory, painting Democrats as critical race theorists, and playing up the threat to the nation's children from left-wing readings of history and of America's constitution, seems like a pretty successful strategy. And we're going to hear a lot more of that over the next few years. Why is it such powerful stuff, do you think? Well, I think if you're on the left, you would say that it's successful because it is a racist dog whistle, right? It's 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 Lee Atwaterism. Lee Atwater was a famous Republican strategist from the early 80s who said that, you know, overt racism, segregation no longer works. So you talk about things like tax reform, forced school busing, in this case, critical race theory, that sort of signal to your listeners what you're really talking about, but you don't have to actually mention it. If you're on the right, then you would say that it has become successful because there is this sort of rewriting of the terms on which we understand the founders, and that perhaps you feel that, you know, while America has made mistakes and has done things that were wrong, that there was always a recognition that America was a fundamentally good and just and decent country, and that this is now being downplayed. And so in either case, the basic reason why it has been successful is that it has, in fact, been successful, that people on the right have really warmed to this. You can see this in the number of mentions that Fox News has made of critical race theory. In June 2020, they mentioned it three times. And in June 2021, they mentioned it over 900 times. So it's a very potent bogeyman. It's paying electoral returns. And so I think you can expect to see the midterms next year being fought on precisely this ground, education, parents' rights, critical race theory. 
What's so amazing about this debate, as as was clear in Virginia, is that it shows how much Republicans can inflate a problem as a galvanizing issue for a given election when it's not, you know, is it the biggest problem people are facing? No, um, critical race theory in schools, because in Virginia it isn't being taught in schools. And yet, if Democrats don't have anything else to talk about, if they can't point to another accomplishment, um, something that they would like to put forward to voters as evidence of how they can really get the job done, then these discussions can dominate an election cycle. So it's an amazingly effective tool, I think, for Republicans. I disagree with that a bit, Charlotte. I think that one of the things that might be happening here is that the term critical race theory is doing duty for a view of America and American history that is more critical than the view that most Republican voters and activists who want to just talk about the country as a shining city on a hill, as the best country in the history of Earth, and frankly, not to dwell too much on bad things that have happened in the nation's past. And that... You know, this idea that children are being taught that their country, the greatest nation on earth, is in fact a sort of fallen, sinful place, that, that's pretty powerful. So absolutely, you're right that critical race theory in the sense of the kind of esoteric legal f- philosophy that we've talked about on the pod before is not being taught to Virginia school children. But it's probably true that they're getting a very different version of history in schools to that which their parents got. And I think that's one of the things that is pretty powerful. You're completely right, of course, to say that, you know, next to healthcare, the cost of living, various other things, it seems pretty trivial. But but I think it's powerful because it gets to such a core belief among uh, Republican voters about know, what their country is like. I think Democrats' unwillingness to engage with critical race theory with this debate substantively has been a huge mistake. Terry McAuliffe essentially dismissed it as a racist dog whistle. Whatever the merits of that, in, in fact, politically, it did not help him. One of the things that Barack Obama was really good at in his speeches and in his politics was portraying change and evolution as being part of the best of America, that America is an idea, it is evolving, and for it to reach its full potential, it must continue evolving. And so I think there's an opportunity for Democrats to sort of take on these questions head on and to say, look, yeah, we have to teach our hard history. It doesn't mean that this country isn't great. It doesn't mean it isn't inspiring or an example for the world. But we have to face these questions head on. We can't just dismiss them and say that people are bad or wrong for being motivated by them. I think that you're right, John. And for better or worse, I mean, I I was really struck by Josh Hawley's speech at this conference, which was about the deconstruction, quote unquote, deconstruction of American manhood and about how the left has been attacking manhood for years. And literally, I quote, we must seek a revival of strong and healthy manhood in America. And he went on to talk about Um, all the ways in which this is evident, including citing a specific seminar at Williams College. And then he went on to blame this war on men for everything from the opioid crisis to uh, low college graduation rates for men and underemployment for men. And it's just really remarkable. I mean, if the idea that this is a party of self-reliance that promotes the power of the individual and a can-do spirit, um, that they would blame Williams College seminars for the decline of American men. I mean, it's remarkably pathetic. It's like a whine disguised as a battle cry, but it really works. 
if you're someone who's skeptical of this idea that kind of make America manlier again campaign platform, it's hard to engage with seriously. But I think Democrats have to try to think about how they can acknowledge these kinds of concerns and then move beyond them. But I don't envy them for that task because faced with Josh Hawley's speech, it's it's a little hard to take seriously, frankly. You messaged us while the speech was going on saying that you thought make America manly again, aka or mama, would be Hawley's campaign slogan when he inevitably runs for president at some point in the future, or perhaps ought to be. Yeah, I mean, you can't really make it up frankly. But um, Josh Hawley knows what he's doing. He's a smart guy. So I think that mama for him (laughs) may work. Okay, thank you both. We'll be back in a moment to ask what rank and file Republican voters are preoccupied with at the moment. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All this stuff about critical theory and the Frankfurt School can seem a bit distant from the business of harvesting votes. So I asked Kristen Soltis-Anderson, who's a Republican pollster, she runs Echelon Insights and has been on the podcast before, to explain what her surveys reveal about what rank-and-file Republicans are thinking right now. The issue of education definitely played a role in Youngkin's ability to put together a coalition in Virginia. In my polling, we showed McAuliffe ahead by one point among people who are not K-12, kindergarten through 12th grade parents, but we found Youngkin winning by 15 among parents of children who are in schools. So I think there's no doubt that education was a big piece of the puzzle, and you are going to see that as page number one out of the Youngkin playbook that other Republicans will be taking up. But so much Much of the education discussion has focused on this critical race theory piece, and I really believe that that is but one of many issues that fall under the education umbrella. If you are, for instance, frustrated with the government's response to COVID-19 or feel like you, you don't understand why we're not back to normal, education can be a proxy for that. Why is my child still having to wear a mask in school when he or she is four years old and they hate wearing a mask? Those sorts of things. It can also be a proxy for the safety issue. Many young can add featured footage of violent fights breaking out in schools and said, look, Democrats took school resource officers, police officers out of schools in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests. I, as governor, want to make sure that there are police officers in schools keeping kids safe. And looking a bit further out, one of the things that we're trying to do is figure out what degree of enthusiasm Republican voters have for Donald Trump to remain leader of their party, frankly, and and for even potentially to be the nominee again in 2024. What are you picking up about that? I mean, I think most of the reporting, I think the consensus view is Republicans are still broadly pretty excited about Trump, or at least more excited about him than they are about anyone else. Do you think that's accurate? Or do you think that's overdone? 
Month to month, we ask Republicans a question where we say, what do you think of yourself as more, a Donald Trump supporter or as a Republican? And truth be told, those numbers are pretty split, and whichever one is ahead by a few points tends to flip from month to month. When we ask, however, who would you vote for in a Republican primary, Donald Trump or probably someone else, Donald Trump is still pretty dominant on that question. However, What Youngkin did in this case that I think was so effective is that he was able to get all of the benefits of what Trump has done for the Republican Party with none of the downsides. So if you looked at turnout in deep red rural areas, the types of places where Donald Trump was able to run up unbelievable margins, Youngkin did that even greater uh, in his his race. You know, the, the Trump coalition includes a lot of voters who used to be very loosely connected to the political process but have been brought in. And And it turns out that when Donald Trump's not president, but even though he's not on the ballot, his coalition can still hold together. Meanwhile, McAuliffe's efforts to tie Youngkin to Trump didn't really stick. Youngkin doesn't sound like Trump. He doesn't look like Trump. Even though he takes some positions that are in line with Trump's agenda, it was just much harder for Democrats to make the case that anyone with an R after their name is, in fact, a a Trump clone. And that led, I think, Democrats astray on their strategy in Virginia. Can I ask you a question about Republican voters and their attitudes to policy? I mean, a pattern that held pre-Trump with the Republican Party was that Republican voters were okay with broadly with some expansion of entitlements and, you know, weren't that enthusiastic about cutting spending when their own party held the White House. But out of power, you know, we saw this with the Tea Party movement, that sort of small government instinct returned. Most people, I think, imagine that Trump had scrambled that by being the first Republican in a while who didn't really run at all on, on shrinking the state. What can you tell us from your polling about that? There is an instinct among Republicans nowadays to say we're spending too much and we need to stop the big government spending coming out of Washington. And that's a message that you didn't really hear very much during the Trump era. You heard it quite a bit during the Obama administration, but you didn't hear it that much during the Bush administration. And so in some ways, this is a reflection of a historical pattern. But I think there's also something a little bit different about the tone and tenor of Republican opposition to Biden's agenda. And that's that it's not just about the price tag, but another sort of attack that I think has become even more potent from Republicans is not just the money, but government control. And I think this has been supercharged by the pandemic, but the sense of it's not just that, well, would government be spending a lot of money on childcare? It's that would government be controlling the childcare industry more? Would it be government run daycares you'd be sending your child to so on and so forth? And so across a host of issues, it's not just about the price tag, but it's about the expansion of government authority into the realms of people's individual rights that I think especially post-COVID, where government really did take some dramatic actions in the name of public health to curb individual liberties, that there is a real sensitivity to not wanting to give government another inch of authority into people's own personal choices and lives. Charlotte, all this discussion of what Republican voters want and don't want and the philosophical currents within the party are all very interesting. But I guess there's a risk that we fail to mention the obvious thing, which is that Trump is still very much the head of this party. A majority of Republican voters think that the election was stolen. Donald Trump looks likely to be the 
Republican nominee in 2024. I'd say certain to be the nominee if he wants it. The only uncertainty is whether he runs or not. There's been very little introspection in the Republican Party since the storming of the Capitol in January. This is a pretty extraordinary situation. I agree. It's remarkable that a loss in 2020 can result in a party that basically hasn't really changed in any substantive way. A big question going forward for the midterms and then for 2024 is what policies Republicans do choose to embrace? Because it's become clear that um, so much of this is really about the ways that Republicans are able to seize on specific cultural issues. Donald Trump, of course, his presidency was so much about his own personality, um, for better or worse. And so I think that it will be important to note how much personality and culture war continues to carry the Republicans forward versus any more substantive policy proposals that they choose to present. The Economist used to put out um, election briefs that discussed a given president's policy in education, uh, on the economy, et cetera. And we stopped doing that with the advent of President Trump because it was so hard to even discuss what his policies might be. He never put forward anything particularly substantive. So I'm interested to see whether that changes at all in the next two years, four years, or whether it remains largely something that has to do with personality and culture. I think that's exactly right. I think one thing that 2016 showed was that Donald Trump could talk to disaffected voters in a way that they liked. And you can say that it was, you know, all a sham. You could say that it was it was it was it was celebrity. You can make any excuse you want, but it's it just is true. I think Democrats have to try to figure out how to talk to people in a way that they like. To do that, they have to engage in a process of coalition expanding rather than coalition shrinking, which is what I think a lot of people hear them doing now. I think that they genuinely believe that Donald Trump represents an existential threat to American democracy. But what I think a lot of voters hear is something like, you know, Donald Trump represents an existential threat to American democracy. And if you want to enforce our immigration laws, then so do you. Or if you don't want to defund the police, then so do you. And so I think that what this will ultimately lead to for Democrats is probably some sort of reckoning with the progressive left, which is quite risky. But I think that is the lesson that the party probably learned from 2008 and Obama's speech about Jeremiah Wright from 1992 with Bill Clinton and Sister Soldier. I suspect that's the way it's going to go. John, one of the mysterious things about the result from Virginia is there doesn't seem to have been any complaints about electoral fraud. Why Why do you think that might be the case? Well, it turns out when the result is what you want, there's no fraud, right? That does appear to be the answer, doesn't it? Yeah, short and sweet. I wish I could go on some big, you know, pontificatory rant, but that's that's just true. As we're talking about the future of the Republican Party and looking forward toward 2024, I want to make a slightly mad prediction and see what you guys think of it. I think not only... Will Donald Trump be the nominee in 2024? I think he'll have one of his children on the ticket with him. Oh, God. So which child? It has to be Ivanka. That I don't know. Ivanka or Don Jr.? I'm not sure which. My money's on Ivanka. Yeah, I don't think that's a mad prediction. I, you know, it may not happen, but I, I would not bet against it. I think the question coming out of a conference like the one that John just attended is, what does the Republican Party stand for? And it seems to stand for a few things. One is a restoration of something, of manliness, of traditional American history, one could argue, of a return to a more homogenous version of, of America. It seems to stand for quite an economically nationalist agenda, one that promotes um, American industry um, that is not 
uh, is not a defender of free trade and open borders. And it seems to stand on the idea that um, democracy is in peril when Republicans lose. And so each of those three strains of argument, I think, will get varying degrees of emphasis at different points in time. But those do seem to be the three pillars of Republicans and uh, ones that will carry them through the midterms and then perhaps the presidential election in three years' time. We promised not to make this podcast all about the presidential election of of 2024. I'm not going to start saying with 156 weeks to go at the beginning of each each podcast, but this has been been really interesting. We'll get back to some policy topics, I think, in future weeks. But before we do that, and before I let you guys go, it's quiz time. The Economist first wrote about critical race theory in December 2018. We cited it as an influence for one of that year's buzzwords, white fragility. Another zeitgeisty word we highlighted was snowflake, which is used by conservatives to taunt left-wing youths, we wrote. But which, in fact, is the snowiest state in the US? Alaska? Um, I mean, I would, Alaska seems the obvious one, but I actually would have said North Dakota. The answer apparently is Vermont, hmm. which receives an average of 89.25 inches of snow per year. Maine comes next. The state of New York, where you both are, comes in at number seven. Alaska is the fifth snowiest. Minnesota, rather surprisingly to me at least, is 11th on the list, just outside the top 10. Which Minnesota politician claimed she once raised $17,000 from her ex-boyfriends to fund a campaign? Sounds like Amy Amy Klobuchar. Klobuchar. It was indeed Amy Klobuchar. For her first Senate race in 2006, Klobuchar says she called everyone she knew to ask for donations, including her former beaus. The story from Amy Klobuchar is kind of a classic Minnesota nice Story. I was um, reporting on the Senate race between Al Franken and Norm Coleman, and Al Franken's wife had baked this enormous apple pie that was being auctioned off at a at an event. But everyone was just absolutely on their best behavior. You could kind of measure the width of people's smiles in meters. It was um, living up to the stereotype. John, if Alyssa was running for senator, what pie would you bake? Oh, that's just a good question. I mean, I think it would have to be it would have to be apple being in New York, right? It would have to be apple pie. I was assuming you'd go for something with an exotic fungus filling. No, like I could do a Fergus Henderson, you know, pig feet pie with venison stock, but I, I just think apple is much safer. <laughs> I think these are your shrewd political instincts at, at work, Jasmine. <laughs> exactly. Do not feed voters pig foot pie. <laughs> okay, thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks also to our producers, Harriet Noble and Nicholas Rofast. If you like the podcast, then please do let people know and leave us rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. If any of you are fans of the TV show Succession, Brian Cox, who plays the media mogul patriarch Logan Roy, is the guest on The Economist Asks podcast this week. And if you missed our episode last week on The Democrats, that's a good lesson too. In the meantime... Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.